I'd like for you to turn to the fourth chapter of the book of Philippians, the letter to the Philippian Christians, chapter 4. Our text today is verses 8 and 9. A few weeks ago, I uh, introduced a sermon, series of sermons, on keys to success in the Christian life and suggested that the keys to success in the Christian life are related to the keeping of lists. And the Apostle Paul was a keeper of lists. There are three lists in the fourth chapter of Philippians. There is a praise list, and that's verses um, 4 and 5. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. It is a command that's unavoidable. The word rejoice is a Greek imperative verb, and there, it's not optional. You do it, it's obligatory, rejoice. A command that's unavoidable. A communication that is unusual. How do you communicate praise? Not by shouting hallelujah, you know, in service or in a church service. He says, let your forbearing spirit, let your gentle spirit, your gentle reaction to life be indicative of the praise you have to God for, his, for who He is. It's communicated in a way that's unusual. It's a confidence that's undeniable. The Lord is at hand. So because I'm aware of the nearness of God, praise is the, the logical result. And then there is a prayer list. The prayer list is verses 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There is an alternative that is proposed instead of worrying. He doesn't suggest that we can live in a vacuum and pretend that everything is fine in life. He, he, he suggests an alternative proposal to worry, and that's to pray about everything. And there is an answer that is promised, and the answer is that the peace of God shall guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. He may not change the circumstance. He may change it, but probably he, most of the time he doesn't. But he sets a sentinel of peace in your heart to guard it and your mind. And now we come to the last list. It's the ponder and practice list. Here it is. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace shall be with you. 
so that there is the ponder and the practice. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, you use that word ponder so you can make it fit the alliteration. Not really. The word think there is a word that means more than just a passing thought. It means to meditate, really. It means to think with the view to do. So that at one end of this great passage of list, you have the peace of God. On the other end of this list, you have the God of peace. Now it's one thing to have the peace of God. It's an even greater thing to have the consciousness of the God of peace. I think with regard to the peace of God, some of us are a lot like Christopher Columbus. It was said that Christopher Columbus left Spain. He didn't know where he was going. When he got here, he didn't know where he was. And when he got back to Spain, he didn't know where he'd been. Now, some of us can experience the peace of God and know very little about that peace. And so in this marvelous text, he begins at one end with the peace of God and he crescendos to the God of peace. And you can have guidance it's one thing to have guidance. It's another thing to have the guide. So there is one thing to know the peace of God. It's an even greater thing to know fully the God of peace. And so in the first part of this passage, in a brief analysis, he tells us how that peace is possessed. And there are two things that produce the peace of God. That is praise and prayer. So when you develop a spirit of praise and when you develop a program of praying about everything, it produces peace. But that peace has to be preserved and protected. It's interesting how often the Lord allows us the responsibility of preserving, protecting the things He has given. For example, the Apostle Paul says in Colossians that we are to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What he's saying is this, that the Spirit of God produces unity, but that unity must be kept by us in the bond of peace. And he goes along to describe how we keep that so that it is one thing to have this peace that God gives, but it's another thing to be able to preserve it. So the first two things tell us how we possess the peace. The second two things in the passage tells us how that peace is preserved and protected. You possess the peace of God through praise and prayer. You protect and preserve that peace through thinking, pondering, and practicing. Think on these things. How many of you have a front door that has a little peephole in it? Don't, you don't need to show your hands. Most of you have one of these little peepholes in your front door. Or maybe you spent the night in some hotel and it's a nice hotel, always had a little peephole there and a warning over the peephole. Be very careful, it always reminds us never to open the door unless you know to whom you're opening the door. I mean, be very careful about who you allow in your house. Even more is it necessary for you to be very careful about what you allow in your mind. It's interesting and significant how often the Bible deals with a thought life, with what we think. Now it is true that God gives us peace. As the result and the consequence of our praise and prayer, 
He sets as a guard upon our heart and mind His peace. Like a wall, it's there. A sentinel on the wall. But, but worry and anxiety sometimes is an inside job. And we can betray that peace that God gives if we don't guard the thoughts we think. And so that's what this is about. How to preserve and protect the peace of God by guarding your thoughts and practicing them. So he just names some things. Look at them. Whatever is true. Now that word does not, is not a contrast to that which is false. It's really a word that means that which produces confidence. Now there are a lot of things that I don't understand and I can't explain. And those things that I don't understand and I can't explain usually if I think on them very long produce uncertainty and doubt. But there are some things that I understand and I can't explain. And there are some things that produce certainty and reliability and confidence. Now Paul says don't dwell on those things that you can't explain or understand that produce uncertainty and lack of faith. Dwell on those things that are reliable, you can rely on, that have confidence and assurance. These things dwell on. There are always people who are worried about the things they can't explain. Occasionally, if I'm off in revival especially, somebody will come up to me and we'll be talking and we'll talk about the Bible. You know, I, say, I don't know whether I really believe a Bible or not. And I said, well, you know, what's the problem? And, well, there's just so much about the Bible that I, don't, I, can't, I can't understand. For example, every time they'll say, for example, where did Cain get his wife? You ever had anybody ask you that? I mean, if Adam and Eve, were, they were the first parents, and, and their family was Cain, Abel, and Seth, you know, and he went out and he got this wife, where'd she come from? You know? And they'll say, I just don't know whether I can really believe the Bible or not, because I don't understand where Cain got his wife. Where did he get his wife? I don't know where he got his wife. I've got a good answer for that. I'd tell you if I were able. You get it? Cain and Abel. I'd tell you if I were able. Now, now if I, there are so many things that if I dwell on those, you know, I mean, why would I refuse to believe the Bible? Because I can't understand where Cain got his wife. And the only thing that Dwelling on these things you can't explain or understand. The only thing that does is just to create doubt and confusion and, and, and lack of faith. There are some things that I can't understand. Mysteries. Why the evil? Why evil prosper and good suffer? Why do tragedies come? There are some people I know that just seem to have one sorrow after another. Godly people. I can't explain that. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't dwell on it. But what I dwell on are those things that bring confidence and certainty. Think on these things. And whatever things are honest, he says. It's a word that means honorable. Worthy of respect. Dignified. It means those things that bring reverence. Now there are a lot of cheap thoughts and vulgar thoughts and shallow thoughts. And we're constantly bombarded with these cheap thoughts. From the Today Show to the Tonight Show, we're constantly bombarded with opportunities to think cheap and vulgar things. I used to be concerned about programming on television. You know, I'd get kind of embarrassed watching some stuff. You know, my family, I, you know, this language. Now I... 
I'm, I'm kind of concerned about the commercial. You, you see some of these commercials? I mean, give me a break. You know, We live in an irreverent society, and that irreverence has spilled over into the church. Now watch this. And so we come with a flippant, blasé, nonchalant, shallow attitude toward the things of God. Now I'm not suggesting some kind of formal, stuffy kind of service. What I'm saying is this, now you hear me, what I'm saying is this, that what this country needs is a good old dose of a healthy fear of God. Whatever things are right, he said. And that's right per se, that is, right from the standard of, right from the perspective of God's standard. And whatever things are pure, he said, pure thinking. Now Vincent's word study of this Greek word is, is uh, worthy of some consideration. He says that what he's talking about here is not limited to sins of the flesh. He's talking about the purity that relates to all departments of life. He says he's talking about motives as well as acts. And what he's saying is that it's not just a matter of what you do as an act, it's what motivates that. It means pure and unfit, unmixed so that there are no ulterior motives. Now let me tell you something. There are some people who sit around scheming how they can, how they can manipulate and use people and there's ulterior motives. There are ulterior motives in everything they do. I made a discovery when I first started out doing what I'm doing that there is a danger that's inherent in the ministry and that danger that's inherent in the ministry is, is seeing people for what they can do for you. I think we all play that game, don't we? So we're gracious and kind to those people who can do the most for us. And I, I, I discovered this inherent danger that's you know, it's inherent in the ministry, and that is that I begin to measure people not by what I could do for them, but, for, but by what they could do for me. And what Paul is saying is that the only thing that's sitting around with this ulterior design, this scheme of how you're going to use people, the only thing that does is just, pre- just creates turmoil. And whatever, thing is, whatever things are lovely, he said, those things which produce love in the mind, those things which are love-worthy, now there's this certain preacher that I just never did really like. I mean, he's kind of abrasive, and his personality was, you know, just kind of a personality I just really didn't like. And everything he did rubbed me the wrong way. And I just sit around, I just think, you know, his name would come up, and I think, I just can't stand that guy. I didn't like what I saw, you know, as I what I'd see. And one day, through a series of events, I was put into a situation with him where I got to know him. And I discovered some things about him that I did not know before. I mean, he's a pretty good guy, really. And when I started discovering these things that, that, that I really liked about him, those things began to replace the things I didn't like about him. And all of a sudden, I was sitting around thinking about, you know, he's a pretty good guy. That guy's not too bad. Heard about a guy went to his pastor. He said, I just can't get along with my wife. She gets historical. He said, oh, you mean she gets hysterical? 
He's annoying, she gets historical. Every time we have a fight, she brings up all these things I've ever done. You know, some, of you, some of you are historical. Now, let me tell you something. It's a whole lot easier to sit around and think about the things you don't like about somebody. Oh, let me tell you something. It's easy to bring to the surface the things that make you angry and bitter and resentful, isn't it? This is yes. A few years ago, a man by the name of Simon Eisenfall wrote an award-winning short story called The Sunflower. It was an autobiography of uh, uh, autobiographical experience that happened to him 30 years before while he was a while he was surviving a Nazi prison camp. He was a Jew. He said one day he was out working in, the, in a work project and a, and a nurse came running up to him and saying, come with me, I need you immediately, it's an emergency. And so he went with this nurse and he said they, they, they came to, to a young man, a young German officer. His head was bandaged in a bloody bandage that covers, covered his eyes and, and the young man was crying, I need to talk to a Jew. And Simon Asenthal said, I'm a Jew. He said, my SS troop ordered, the, ordered us to set fire to the house of a Jew and when the Jewish family came running out, we gunned them down and I'm about to die and I need the forgiveness of a Jew. And he reached out his hand to Simon Eisenthal and Simon Eisenthal jerked back his hand and turned without saying a word of forgiveness. He lived with that for 30 years. And he concludes the short story, The Sunflower, with, in this unusual way. He said he interviewed 32 people asking them what would they have done. And the majority said they would have done just as he did. And one man said, that soldier should go straight to hell. And the meaning of that, that short story is this that most of us sit around bringing back up the things we despise in others. Whatever is lovely and whatever is of good repute, and Barclay says that this word means that which is fit for only God to hear, so that if it's not fit for God to hear, don't think it because he hears your thoughts. And then in case he's left something else, something out, he says, if there be any virtue, and, and, and most people believe that there, is a, there was a list of virtues that every Roman uh, praised, he said, in essence, if, you, if there's anything that even the world praises, these are the things you dwell on. Think. And then practice. Now watch me carefully. There are just two commands and imperatives in this passage, in this text. Think and, command, and, and do, ponder and practice. They're like Siamese twins. Now, why do you suppose that thinking and doing go together? Well, that's an easy answer. Because every deed is the result of a thought. And the deed is the product of the thought. So that what you think is what you do, and you do only what you think, there's an old proverb that says, sow a thought and you reap an act. Sow an act or a deed and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a life. Sow a life and you reap an eternity. 
what that old proverb is saying is this, that every deed in this world is the product of a thought. Look around you. This building is a product of a thought. Every government, every institution, every public building, every invention, every, every machine, every work of art is a realized thought so that there is the thought which produces the deed. And it has been said that there is nothing true or false, good or evil in this world or any other world that was not first of all a thought. So that what you think is what you do. And if you dwell on these things, that's what you'll do. And they go together. Carl Valenza was the greatest aerialist of, our, of the world, in the world. For years he traversed the high wire fearlessly until 1978 when in San Juan, Puerto Rico, he plunged to his death. His wife wrote about that later. She said, for three months prior to his death, that's all he could think about, falling. He dwelled on it. He was obsessed by it. It would like, he never had done that before, but for some reason, for three months prior to his falling, all he could think about was falling. And said his wife, he spent all of his energy on not falling rather than on traversing the wire. That's why Paul said, whatever is pure, it's that thing on these things. Now watch carefully. When a person dwells on a thought or thoughts, after a little bit of time, after a while, after a period of time, subconsciously he creates a situation that affects the thought. It's called self-fulfilled prophecy. What that means is that if I stay with my mind on a certain thing, after a while, subconsciously, I produce the situation that affects that very thing. And we learned last few weeks ago that not only what you think affects what you do, but what you do affects what you think. So they're linked. They're, they're linked. Secondly, they go together. Are you, are you hearing me? They go together because only that which you do, you retain. Now, now, now watch carefully. You can think something, but until you do it, you don't retain it. You retain the thought you practice. I want you to turn with me right quickly. I want to use this, and we're out of here in just a second. I want you to turn to the book of Mark, because I, I want to try to explain one of the most difficult sayings in all of Scripture. The fourth chapter of the book of Mark. I'm going to get, begin reading at verse 23. I love to hear you turn. I know you're, some of you are turning on over that page. Chapter 4, verse 23. And, 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 and let me give you the context. Jesus has just told this familiar parable about the sower going out and sowing the seed. You remember that parable? This is yes. This is no. Remember that parable? The sower went out and he sowed the seed. Some fell on stony ground. It died before it got rooted. Some birds picked up the... And he, and he, and he, he told us that, that what he was talking about was the, was the, the gospel being presented and not taking root, etc. Now, he comes to verse 23 and says, If any man has ears to hear, let him hear. 
And he was saying to them, Take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it shall be measured to you, and more shall be given you besides. Now what he's saying is this, that the more you obey, the more you get to obey. The more truth you obey, the more truth you get. Okay, and the next verse is the difficult one. For whoever has, to him shall more be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Now, does that sound like a contradiction? He's saying, if you don't have anything, you're going to have it taken away from you. How can you take away something that you don't have? Well, this is what Jesus was saying. This is what Jesus was saying. He was saying that you can listen to truth after truth after truth after truth, but until you practice it, you don't really have it. And you go to Falls Creek, and you can go to Sunday school, and you can go to church all your life, and you can listen to sermons and lessons and discipleship material over and over and over again, and you say, yeah, I've got it now. But until you practice it, you don't have it. I've been somewhat concerned about all these Baptists that are going off after these cults, and I got a little something on the side here I can say about one of these cults here in town and I are having a real go round. I mean, they're after me. I, I don't understand. You know, sometimes he's, I don't understand how these how Baptists can go off and join the Mormons as cult. They are a cult. They deny the deity of Jesus and the Jehovah's Witnesses. The fastest group growing is the Mormons, and they're getting more Baptists than any other, any other denomination or non-denomination. And we say, how can people who grew up in a Baptist church, how can they swallow that stuff? Let me tell you how they swallow it. Is they come to a Baptist church and they get the truth over and over and over. They listen to it, but they don't practice it. So they never had it. And that which was then truth to them is taken away and they get a lie. Now that's just, that's exactly what that means. For what this passage teaches is this, is that in order to have something in retention, you've got to obey that, practice it, or you don't have it. Now, I want to conclude with this marvelous statement that Paul makes in conclusion. His conclusion is mine. He said, not, 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 I, I'm, I'm, my conclusion is his. Should be the way it is. <laughs> I'm not, I'm going to ask you to do what I do. He said, whatever you've seen in me, whatever you've heard in me, whatever you've observed in me, I want you to do that. You know what he was saying? He's saying, I am the living proof that this works. Ron Dunn told about um, beginning to preach the Spirit-filled life and how to live victoriously and successfully in the Spirit-filled life. He said after, the ser after one of the services, a guy came up to him and said, Pastor, that sounds great, but it won't work. It'll work for you as a, as, a, as a preacher, but out there in the real world, out there in the jungle, it won't work out there. 
And he said on Wednesday night after that Sunday, that man told him that, they were in prayer meeting, and a young guy got up who worked in the same office building downtown Dallas that the guy who had just said that to him the Sunday before worked. And this, they were having testimony meeting, and this guy, this young guy got up and said, Pastor, I love what you've been preaching, and I want to testify that it works. I want to testify that I'm the living proof that you can live the Spirit-controlled life and that you can practice just what you've been describing. And he said, there, the other, this executive sitting over there, just, you know, mouth dropped open. And all of a sudden, it dawned on him, there is living proof that it works. Now I want you to look around you this morning. I want you in your mind, as you look around in your mind, I want you to note the people that are living proof that this works. And they not only have the peace of God, they have in full knowledge the God of peace. And I hope that causes you Crave it for yourself. Let's pray. Father, help us now to put our mind on that which creates love, confidence, peace. Now let us hear your voice the doing of your will. For I pray in Jesus' name. Look here. Just as serious and still as you can be. No movement, please. Hear these invitations. I invite you this morning to come and receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You've never encountered Him. You've heard all about Him. You've heard, you've read about Him. But you've never trusted Him. And you've never obeyed Him. He's not yours until you do. I want to invite you to come this morning and place your life in this church fellowship. There's something special going on in this church at this point in time. I'm glad to be a part of it. We want you to come. Place your life with us here. Or maybe you just need to come to say, Pastor, I need to begin to practice all these things I've heard. I haven't been practicing. Whatever God leads you to do, it's our prayer you'll do it without delay while we stand.